So I wanted to go to Ephesians this morning. And Ephesians chapter 6, we were talking about the whole armor of God in the weeks leading up to this. We've gone through each piece of the armor of God. We've discussed how we wear the armor of God. We've discussed the importance of various pieces and how really they're so well integrated that we cannot um, take one piece away and say, well, this one is more important than that one. They're very much a, a part of our Christian discipline as a whole. And so in Ephesians chapter 6, at the end of the armor of God passage, Paul writes and says, and for me that utterance may be given to me, this is verse 19, and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may be open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And so the part as I was reading over this that kind of jumped out to me is he is an ambassador in chains. So this is, this is someone who is sent out to tell a, a, about, uh, basically to make relationship between their country or kingdom and people who are in another country or kingdom. Maybe it's even the citizens of this country who are still at large, but this is what they're doing. They're interacting, they're representing their country over there, but he is an ambassador in chains. He is wearing chains. He's in bondage. And so I was like, well, you know, Christianity right now, uh, there's a lot of people who are feeling as if there is a um, conspiracy against the church or something because this virus is, is out there. And so there's, there's every kind of conspiracy. So whatever kind you like, there is one for you, okay? But like the one is just, well, if, if the government gets to make mass rulings and shut down all the big churches in America, just like that, wow, that's a lot of power for the government to have. And so that's one that's out there. And so I'm thinking, yeah, well, look at Paul. Like, really, he was in bondage. He was not being, he was not being asked to make a decision. He was not being told to avoid big gatherings. He was just clapped into chains and put in the dungeon. And yet from there, from his, and this I think was being written more from the, the, the private house that he was in with the, with, where he had the soldier that was with him the whole time where he was in bondage and he was waiting. Um, but it's from this place of bondage and chains that he is reaching out to someone else and is still instructing and encouraging and writing and strengthening the church. His ministry and his hope for what he's doing is continuing on. He didn't stop just because he was in bonds. In fact, he seems to use the bonds to help him and to, to be of a, a cause for people to remember. Pray for me because I'm in chains. Pray for me because I'm in bonds. And so the circumstance is in chains. And yet, his battle readiness is fully armed. He is completely armed. He's completely ready to go out and to do battle. His mission is an ambassador for the king, for Jesus Christ. And one of the realities that we have is that you and I always have those three things in place. We have our circumstances, we have our battle readiness, and we have our mission. And there are times when you and I come into a circumstance and because of the circumstances, we are not battle ready. 
because we don't know how to respond, we don't know how to act, we don't know how to walk in this circumstance. And so I'm thinking of a national level of, of something like this right now. Did you know that there are people who are just now, for the first time, thinking about how their behavior impacts someone else? There are people who have gone through their whole life and have somehow managed to escape the thought that what I do affects other people. And so it is good for us to learn this from an early age, but I'm just telling you from the, from the, the things I'm reading online, there's a lot of like light bulb moments happen, happening for people that is causing them to respond and to react in different ways. And so we as believers want to be first to the reaction or the, the, the response. We want to think ahead. And so part of what I'm looking at when I look at the Apostle Paul being in prison and in here, and, and he is asking that he may speak boldly as I ought to speak. I, can, I cannot imagine, I mean, I can imagine it because I have a great imagination, but I've never experienced something quite like this. But to be in a circumstance where the person that is brought into my field of mission, the person that I should be sharing Jesus with, that I should be sharing the love of God with, is also the person that is bent and, I mean, really trying to stop me and maybe even kill me because he doesn't want me to preach the gospel. So most of the time, I'm able to walk into, you know, a community, uh, Walmart, any gathering of people and as I'm there I'm able to look around and realize okay that group of people over there they really don't want to talk to me they wouldn't want to listen to me but over here is a group that might want to listen to me I can almost always find somebody that would be willing to listen to me but what if I'm in a circumstance where everyone around me really doesn't want to hear me now it's possible for Paul that over the years that he had some guards who were believers very interesting. I spent some time last night. I read that one book and then I was reading my, um, I have a, a three-part series of big old books that were written by a Civil War general who had gone back and written a history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And so I'm going through this book last night because I'm looking for some very specific um, I want to understand a little better who is this Julian character because he showed up um, and I'm going to read a quote I think from him in a minute. Um, I wanted to know who, which Caesar he was, where he fit, and I, I was trying to get a timeline of what was going on in Rome and where did Christianity fit into this. So it is possible that in Paul's time, because of the way that the gospel went into all the world and people understood and responded to Jesus, it is possible that he had soldiers guarding him that were believers. It is within the realm, and in, in fact, in the, if you watch that one movie, uh, Paul the Apostle, I forget what it was called exactly, but it was, it was in theaters last year, they, they showed that the guards themselves were very sympathetic, if not one, with him, and that there was a response that was required. And so there is a, there is a, there is a, there is a chance that the people he was interacting with were on the same page as he was. But I thought it's good for us to take a moment and think because I'm telling you, the where you live and how you think, not everyone thinks the way you do. There's a lot of people who do, but there's some people who don't. 
Now, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying you need to know this. You need to be aware. If you're going to wear your armor and be effective in pre- presenting the gospel, you want to know what are the, what is the circumstance that you're in? What are the circumstances of the people around you? And a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the sword of the spirit, I had mentioned that it makes a big difference how we use the sword of the spirit if we think, if we, think we are going in to rescue someone and cutting loose the bonds that are holding someone in captivity or if we think someone is trying to kill us and we're trying to to disable an enemy. You don't want to treat the prisoner that you're trying to release in the same way that you would retreat the enemy because you don't want to run the prisoner through with a sword and say, well, I was just trying to help. Like you want to actually know how to wield the word of God and know how to use the sword of the spirit to be able to help in a real sense. And so I just, I wanted to come back to that thought and say, well, here we are. We've got the armor. We are fully armed. And now that we're fully armed, what is our circumstance? Well, we look around us and what you see on a daily basis, what restrictions have been placed on you. Are you able to go to work? Are you able to do the things that you normally do? For myself, I'm able to do almost everything I normally do. I have not been, when I think of coronavirus and and the, the quarantine, I work from home. I meet small groups of people throughout the week, so depending how bad it gets and depending if I get sick or one of them gets sick, meetings are canceled and I can't meet with them and talk with them. But for the most part, I'm not hanging out in large groups of people. For the most part, I'm not having to go out in public all the time. I sit at home and work from my desk. That's what I do. And so for me, it really doesn't make much difference. So it feels a little surreal sometimes when I take a moment to peer into what is happening in the greater world out there and realize how dramatically lives are changing. There are people who are living from paycheck to paycheck who are not gonna get a paycheck next week because they're being, they are being told to stay home. And there's others who have no idea what to do with their children and suddenly all of their children are now home for this many days and whatever plans they had like last night late last night the skis all the ski slopes closed and so up you know on friday governor polis was still saying go skiing because outdoors is great get outdoors just stay with your little group and but the problem i think that they ran into was that works on the slope, it doesn't work in the lodge. And so where everyone's coming to the lodge is just so crowded and you cannot help but be in contact. And so they finally had to be like, well, there's no way to go skiing without using the lodge. And so they finally shut it down. And so I'm just thinking about all the people, like I'm used to having my boys bouncing around my house all day, every day. It's not a big deal. I mean, some days it's a big deal. Sometimes I've had it up to here and I'm like, okay, outside or whatever. However, for the most part, it's not a big, I'm used to it. I know how to interact with my boys. But what if this is the first time they're staying home all day, now I'm staying home, what are we going to do? And so you have to be aware of your circumstance and the circumstances of those around you. And I wanted to just read in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, something that Paul writes, again, using the words ambassador. And I think it's good for us to consider um, for ourselves what it means for us that we are ambassadors. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he says in verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. 
And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So let's stop with that verse for a moment and say, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If you think of the people you know in your life, there are some that you say, I remember either the day or the week or the month or the year that you observed them going from old person to new person. Something dramatically changed. They met Jesus. They were saved. They were born again. Life changed dramatically. What I don't always think about is the fact that when I'm looking out on the street, every person that I see is either new creation or they're not. Every person that I interact with, every person that I talk with, every person that I rub shoulders with, every person that I see on a daily basis, weekly basis, everywhere I go, they're either new creation or they're not. And so Paul seems to be keenly aware of this because even when he meets Jews, he is always going after them to find them and to see where they are in, in their faith. Now, so I want to keep reading, but keep that in thought as you think about your circumstances that are around you um, and whether you think you're in bonds or not and the people around you, are they, what is their circumstance? So if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Verse 18, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Paul is outlining his understanding of his calling. He has been called to be an ambassador. He has been called to call other people to Christ. And, and, and because of Christ's command that we should go into all the world, that we should preach the gospel, that we should preach uh, and teach others the things that Christ has commanded us, we fit into the same calling. Now, we don't all do it the exact same way. We have different ways that we do it. But there's something that God is calling you to help you that will say to someone else, be reconciled to God that God loves you and cares for you and wants you to come to know him. And so we're in a world where there are so many lies and so many things, and, and I, you know, even just these last two weeks, it's just been, if you care about facts and for actual truth, um, social media has been absolutely horrific recently. People just pull numbers from places, put together little graphics, throw them out there. They don't cite anybody, they don't, you can't prove that it's real and it's just out there and there's all of these and, and uh, there was a meme that said the guy is sitting there looking at his computer and he yells to his wife over his shoulder and says it's really amazing to me everyone that was a, uh, a constitutional lawyer a month ago is now a, a, a disease specialist or whatever <laughs> an infectious disease specialist and it's kind of true we we see we hear a few facts we hear a few 
statistics and we, we want to apply them to everyone we know. And yet, there are actual facts out there. There's actual truth out there. And so, I personally am also a target of people who come onto social media and because I have a lot of friends and I have an Amish back name, there's a lot of people that'll friend me, not because they actually know me or want to, want to know me, they're just trying to build a huge audience and they're trying to hammer us with their variation of truth. And so, and I'll know them because they, I don't know what they do, but they literally every 15 to 20 minutes every day are blasting another statement that's very judgmental, very harsh, has some scripture in it. And so I'm thinking the same thing. I'm thinking, well, here are all these people taking facts and stuff and saying things about everyone else. And whether they think, and this is the, this is the problem, the balance between at a time like this to say, well, I am not afraid, to say I'm not afraid is one thing. To say everyone else should stop being afraid too. Y'all, you're all fools. So now we have a problem because we have a, we've made blatant statements and we have no data to back it up with. So how do we find compassion and how do we find accuracy? And, and, and I'm, I don't want to just talk about, I'm not talking about the coronavirus. I'm talking about our own Christianity, how we live this. And, and one of the things in thinking about being an ambassador for Christ, uh, there was an article that was being circulated and I looked it up and that was what made me read the, fall, Rome, fall, uh, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire last night because there were quotes in here. And so this is, a, fr is, this is from Moses Lee. He wrote in, um, the gospel, for the Gospel Coalition. And he wrote this. He said, in AD 249 to 262, Western civilization was devastated by one of the deadliest pandemics in its history. Though the exact cause of the plague is uncertain, the city of Rome was said to have lost an estimated 5,000 people a day at the height of the outbreak. One eyewitness, Bishop Dionysus of Alexandria, wrote that although the plague did not discriminate between Christians and non-Christians, its full impact fell on non-Christians. Having noted the difference between Christian and non-Christian responses to the plague, he says of the non-Christians in Alexandria, he says, at the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. So the picture for me, knowing what I know about the way disease spread, when I'm thinking at the very onset of a disease, you just throw the people out on the streets and then you leave dead bodies above the ground. To me, that is, I'm, I'm horrified by it. I'm like, well, no wonder it's spreading. It's getting worse because look what you're doing. But he said the Christian response were different because Christians were taking care of those who were dying and the Christians were respecting them when they died and burying them properly and therefore they were no longer rotting on the street they were now actually, and so they, it was making a difference in how they responded. And it was a century later, this was the one that I was going after. Julian, Julian, he complained, he was an emperor, he was at the time, it was the time of, it was right before Constantine. And so he is complaining to the Greeks that they needed to match the Christians in virtue. And he blamed the recent growth of Christianity on their that because the Christians, would, they had benevolence to strangers, they care for the graves of the dead, and their pretend holiness of their lives. And he says, it is a disgrace 
that the impious Galileans, that's the Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. And so I wanted to see who this Julian was. Well, he, he, had, he did a lot of work in, in trying to bring the empire back together under one emperor, um, especially in France and in, that, in the German, Germanic areas. He was in Paris most of his, most of his um, career. And then when Constantine came along, he was feeling the full result of this, of having had Christians for now centuries taking care not only of their own poor, but all the, of the poor of others. And so the Christians were putting their own, and, and elsewhere, if you go and look, there's other um, quotes and other writings, but they basically were saying Christians are willing to die to take care of someone else. They're willing to take care of someone they don't even know unto the death and then be willing to die of the same disease. And so as a result, here you had in an empire where everyone was supposed to be worshiping all these different gods, and many of the gods had a very dark side that if you didn't worship them properly, they'd come after you. Here was a group of people, by everyone else, they, they were being told that these people are atheists because they only believe in one god instead of all the gods. And they refused to put, they, they refused to walk into your city and be like, well, sure, I'll make an offering to this one and to that one just in case and this one just in case. They will, they, they refuse. And so now we, so at first it would be, they were being blamed for bringing all these diseases and things in because they wouldn't pray to these gods. And yet when the diseases came and when the plague came, they were responding with such love and such compassion that the ungodly were looking at them going, okay, and, and I read one speech uh, that Julian had made where he was literally telling them, saying, look, it's time for us. And so he said, I've, I've, I've sent all of this money to you. I need you to use this money and to use it to reach out because if you don't, they are already reaching out. And then he was trying to, uh, and there was a priest that was helping him at the time too, was trying to get other priests on board. And so they were, these were priests to the gods of Rome. And they were trying to match the benevolence, the love, and the kindness of a Christian people. And so as, as I'm reading through that, and I'm thinking, you know, and I just read the book about George Evans and his father, Peter, who had been killed for the gospel and, and, and all of the, everything in Russia and how much they continued to love even underneath the Iron Curtain where they had every reason to say, well, it's, it's hopeless, we might as well give up. And yet they hung on with a tenacity that was not just human. They hung on with a tenacity of something that was more. And so it's coming back to us being ambassadors for Christ, one of the simple things that you and I need to remember is there is, a, there is a reality of who Christ is and who God is. There is a certain amount of wisdom and courage and strength that you will receive from studying history and from world awareness. If you know what's happening around the world, it will cause you to not take yourself or your circumstances quite as seriously in a self-destructive way, but to be able to understand this is what's happening to other people. And so it doesn't mean that you don't exercise caution, doesn't mean that you're not concerned, it doesn't mean that you don't take necessary measurements and steps. It just means that you are aware of how bad things have been in the past, how bad things are now. Right now, there are people in America who are convinced that they are living through the worst times that have ever been. 
And they're expecting Jesus to come back at any moment because these are the worst times. And I'm telling you, these are not the worst times. If you've read history, you don't even have to go back, you don't even have to go back 100 years. There are worse times. We live in a time of amazing freedom, an amazing health, amazing advancement. It's amazing what we get to experience. The one thing that hasn't changed is that there is both God in heaven and there is an enemy of God and there is a battle waging out on earth around us and there are times when you and I come into contact with the enemy in an unexpected way and suddenly we realize, wow, this is real. And at that moment, for a minute, you might think, wow, this is worse than it's ever been. And it's, there is some benefit to reading history, to understanding how things have been in the past, to understanding how things are, to knowing what, how things are in other countries right now. There is some benefit in that. But there is something else. Not all of those Christians in Alexandria, not all of those Christians in Rome, not all of those Christians in the first century knew all had a great world awareness. Not all of them had a, a good grasp of, under, of historical understanding. Some of them their worst, uh, when they looked back, they might have known about the Jewish history. They might have known about being uh, slaves in Egypt. They might know about being um, stuck in, uh, in, in Babylonian captivity. They might know those things, but they didn't necessarily have a big grasp on history. That wasn't what was driving them. Your historical knowledge can give you better perspective. It can make you snobby on Facebook, too. Um, but it can, it, can, it can give you a better perspective. I personally appreciate that sort of snobbery better than some of the other kinds of snobbery, right? I appreciate it when people bring some historical context and say, well, hey, look at this. But there is, that is not quite sufficient to cause what happened during the plagues in Rome and, and from reports that I heard that I haven't been able to verify because I don't have access to the underground church in China uh, very easily, but from reports that I've heard coming out of China, out of the Wuhan province and others, is that Christians in China have been showing their God to be strong and mighty in the middle of this very difficult time. That the church has been responding in a beautiful way that is causing locals to take notice to what's happening. It is possible for God to take something like the Wuhan virus that's going around and, and, and in China where you have a government who is trying to run everything in a way to be very successful but also very controlling. It's possible for God to take a virus like this and take the response of his people right in the middle of that virus to blow a government apart. Because it happened for the Soviet Union. They couldn't hold it for generation after generation, once you had no more meaning, you lost your understanding of things and there was only so much that you could get from wearing that red tie and being part of that Soviet youth and then growing up and, and, and repeating the empty lies. There was only so much for it and when you kept running into people that would smile and rejoice and sing in the face of beatings and imprisonment and death, it would shake you to your soul to the very core, and so something had to change, and so eventually the curtain came down. And so there is no government so secure, not North Korea, not China, there's no government that is safe from the influence of Christianity. And when Christianity comes in, and the power of influence of the name of Jesus comes in, it can blow up anything. 
And so when we look at our own government and we look at the things that are happening here, there are times when we can be very concerned and we can say, I'm so concerned about this or I'm so concerned about that, the amount of control or the amount of regulation, or the, and, and we can be very concerned. But I'm telling you one thing. Political strength will only go so far. Political influence will only go so far. But what will make a difference in any and every society is when the person of Jesus Christ is present in that society through the lives of his believers. So when we are his ambassadors and we're in the middle, we don't even, I don't even have to stand up here and say, all right, here's what you need to do. You need to do this and this and this. You know, I don't even have to instruct you how to respond if your neighbor becomes ill. Because with the beauty of Christianity is that you can come to know Christ and you become a new creation and God himself is interacting with you and is speaking through you and you will respond in a Christ-like way without having to quickly gather together a committee and have a meeting and talk about what the proper response is. You will be able to respond in the moment. Will you make mistakes? Sure. We all make mistakes. That's part of life. It's part of the brokenness of the world. But what is so beautiful about Jesus Christ is that you can know him and he not only redeems you from your sin, but he wants you to walk with him and obey him and represent his kingdom well. And, I, and I, there are places when I read through the Gospels, I was reading in Matthew some this week and looking at some of the stories, and there's quite a few times when there will be an account and at the end of it will be something along the line of, and, if you, and whoever did this had eternal life. And you're like, wait a minute, hold on just a second. What does this mean? What is this eternal life? And so I started looking at it and see you could take any of those passages and say, okay, secret to eternal life, you have to do this, 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 and this. But when you pull back and you look at all of the gospel, here's what you find out is that on the stage of the world, starting back at the time of Adam and Eve, we were given a great choice, a great opportunity. We could see by evidence all around us, to this day when you walk out, you see the mountains, you see the trees, you see the streams, you see all of creation, and you realize somebody created this. And then that person that created it injects himself into their lives and gives them an opportunity. Follow me or love yourself and listen to the lies of the enemy. And this has continued on to this day. And so in the middle of all of us as people realizing I keep following myself and I keep being selfish, into the middle of a world that was full of selfishness, full of brokenness, full of hurt, this is where Jesus came. And he came and he came into the world and he walked among us. He died for us to rescue us. And again and again, while he was here, he made some very strong statements. And even the very first statement that he made as when he started preaching, when he started preaching the gospel of the kingdom, is he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in that moment, that is a huge shift. Something is changing. We're not talking about the kingdom of this earth. We're not talking about a political culture that you're part of. We're not talking about your family values and the honor that you have. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven. We're talking about a king. We're talking about a person, a king. If you look at what a king gets to do, a king is the final judge of what happens in his country. 
If people disobey the laws of the king, he gets to decide what their consequences are. The king is also the one that when you come and you ask for mercy, he has the authority to give you mercy. And so when we talk about the gospel, we talk about it in many different ways, but one part that we must never cease to understand is that it is the person of Jesus Christ that we are wanting to lift up and to exalt. And our response to Jesus, the king of heaven, that is what we're looking for. When you come to Jesus, do we come with our hands uplifted and we're telling him what's what? Do we come thinking, ah, you're, you're kind of a nice mythology, I, I want a few things. Do we come hoping that somehow we can befriend him and get some benefits and he can help us be who we want to be? Or do we come and understand that he is the king, that he is on the throne, and he gets to say what happens? And so we come humbly before our almighty God and we say, and we humble ourselves before him, and he raises us up not to become who we want to be, but because he has something for us. So you've been put into a circumstance. You've been called. You've been called by God to submit yourself to Jesus Christ. And so when you prayed to become a Christian, you might have prayed it various ways. Whether you prayed and asked Jesus into your heart, whether you asked him to forgive you of specific sin, however you prayed, what, you're, what God is after with you is he is not just looking to be a nice addition to your life. He doesn't just wanna be a little app on your home screen of your phone. He is basically wiping you completely as a device and putting in a brand new operating system, brand new drive that changes you, not into a better version of who you were, but into a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. He is calling you to himself to make you a new creature. And then when you are that new creature, here's our challenge that we have as believers, is that we are rubbing shoulders with old creatures. And for some reason, here in this world, we have still a living memory of ourself, the old creature. And so there are habits and, and words and things that are in us that cause us to respond in the old ways. And so what is happening for each of us, if we have responded to Christ, if we've surrendered to him, there are two things that are at work. One is our spirit is being prepared for that day when we are with him and we will be with him in glory. And at the same time, everything else, our soul, our mind, will, and emotions, everything is having to be brought into submission to him here. And that is not just a work for here, it is something that will be of benefit there but we really feel the effects of it here. It is here that we discover, oh, if I follow Christ, that means I cannot follow some of these other philosophies and thoughts. If I'm going to be obedient to Christ, I cannot just be pursuing my own fleshly desires. If I'm going to bring glory to Christ, I cannot be bringing glory to myself. So these, there are some, there, there's these if or, or however that goes. I, I always, my logic gets messed up a bit. But like, you can't do both of these things. And so like the Emperor Constantine, when he came to Christ um, in, in the, third, the, the fourth century, when he was looking at Jesus, he was very much trying to put one more spot for Jesus up on Mars Hill or up on, at the Arapagas or where, you know, he was trying to have one more 
and put Jesus in there and say, this is the God I follow. But as he went on, until on his deathbed, when he was baptized on a confession of his faith, something had happened. It went from just trying to use Jesus as a political thing to an actual understanding, okay, it's only Jesus. It's not all of these gods and Jesus among them. And so some of us grew up in a Christian family and we would never say, oh yes, Jesus among other gods. We say, no, there's only one God, it's Jesus. But we live our life as if we are God and there's other people that are God and there's things that are God. We live our lives in fear and trembling before these other things and we don't really consider Jesus. And so the thing that I wanted to do for us this morning, I cannot instruct you so well that you will know how to respond to every situation that you will face this week. However, what we can do collectively as, 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 as a, a group of believers is we can take a moment to think about the reality of Christ and who he is and the reality of our future with Christ and the, the, just to stop and consider again who we are ambassadors for and why we are representing Christ. And there's several ways we could do this, but this morning I wanted to just go ahead and take some time to read out of Revelation a few passages and to think about Jesus. Now, in the same way that you can take some time to think about history, you can think about other nations, other countries, in the same way that you can do that and it helps you to some extent, you can turn your eyes and your ears and your heart to who Jesus is. And instead of just helping you somewhat, it can completely transform you. It can cause you to walk into uh, the world around you and feel completely not at home and very much aware I am an ambassador here because I don't fit here. I'm not here to do the things that they are here to do. And that's a good thing. So I want to, I want to encourage you as we read these to just stop and think of who Jesus is. And then even to take this home and throughout the week, if you have extra time that you wouldn't normally have, to go ahead, and even if you don't have extra time, make some time to stop and consider the person of Jesus Christ and what it is that the high king of heaven is asking of you. Because he's, he has redeemed us and he's called us to himself. We are his. It's no longer our own lives. We belong to him. And on some level, Somewhere in this, there is a, a moment of surrender that will happen, and not just a one-time thing, but multiple times in your life, there is a moment that will happen that will change things for you, and you will sense the presence of Christ in newer, deeper ways. It's not anything new. We can read for 2,000 years of church history and find that people have been coming and getting to know Christ better and they have these moments when they write about it. And, you, and you, when, you, when I read about them, I'm like, I want those moments. I want those times when I'm closer to Christ, when I'm closer to him, when I realize more of him. So listen to who, think about who is Jesus, the reality of Jesus Christ. Revelation, verse 19, starting in verse 11 it says, now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had, he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen 
white linen followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So when you are putting on the armor of God and you're praying through the armor of God, do you imagine the commander of your ba- the, the battle that you're in? This is Jesus. You are, in, you are one of his soldiers. You are wearing his armor. He is leading you into battle. And so while you're looking at Revelation and we look at this specific thing, there are specific things that John was saying, but this is our king. This is our Jesus. This is the one whom we serve And this is what he looks like when he comes out to go to battle. And so if you can, in your mind, put on the preparation of the gospel of peace, and as you start walking into battle with all of the armor of God, and you start realizing it's not just me, but the king of kings and lord of lords on a white horse is riding to battle on his behalf, and I am riding with him. I'm walking with him. It will change your perception of how you go into battle. So now let's look into, uh, let's go down and think about our, our future with Christ. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 11, there is this scene that is described. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So this is a, a terrible moment. When I was a child, um, there was a, the, what I heard the most about end times was the account of this that Christ gives over Matthew, where he said that he was going to be sitting on that final thr- uh, throne of judgment, and all people would come before him, and he would separate on the right hand and on the left the sheep and the goats. And what I was always told in those services was that we need to obey the church and we need to hope and maybe we can make it to be one of the sheep on that day. But we were never given any assurance that we could be. And so there was always a certain amount of dread and terror when I thought about Jesus high on his throne and I'm coming before him. And I'm gonna tell you this, there is no man who can approach Jesus on the throne without some sense of awe, some sense of how worthy he is and how unworthy we are. But there is one thing in this account here in Revelation that gives me such hope, and it is the fact that he himself has a book of life. The lamb has a book of life. And in that book of life, he writes the names of those who are his. And so this is not something where I can clamber up to heaven and find the room where he keeps the book and find the pen and write my name in it with his handwriting. This is impossible to, for me or for you to do. We cannot do this on our own. And so even though it says that they are being judged by their works and being cast into hell, it says that those who are saved are saved because their name is in the Lamb's book of life. And so when I think of that day, this is what I am imagining. 
When I get there, the angel opens the books. They find my chapter. And as they're reading down the chapter, there is enough in there to condemn me to hell. There is enough action. There is enough works. There's enough deeds and thoughts and things in here that will send me to hell. But while he's reading, while he's still reading, the other angel is flipping through the Lamb's Book of Life Say, oh, hold on. His name is here. And so suddenly they say, oh, okay. Can you check that again and see were there anything in his account that he did because of Jesus? And so instead of looking for things to condemn me, they now go back and read through my life, finding the things that happened in my life because of Jesus Christ. And suddenly those things become part of a reward that I don't deserve. But because I cried out to Jesus and because he wrote my name in the Lamb's Book of Life because of the blood of Jesus, that for that reason, I can stand on that day and I can be one of the sheep. I can be enter into the joy of my Lord. And so this day is coming. This is the future that you and I are looking toward. We're looking for that day when, yes, there is a lot of things written in these books because I love the fact that he says, and books are opened. So there's lots and lots of books. I like books, but this book sounds a little terrifying when it knows everything I've done. I'm kind of scared of that book. But this book, the Lamb's Book of Life, I am so grateful to my king that he made a way that doesn't involve all my actions of that book, but instead it's his book, the Lamb's Book of Life. And so then he keeps looking, John is, in, verse 20, in chapter 21, he says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. This is an echo of a promise that has been given to us over and over and over and over again. This is the heart of God, that he would be our God and that we would be his people. You find it from Genesis all the way through Revelation. This is the heartbeat of God. He wants us to be his people and he wants to be our God. Verse four, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Remember that scripture that uh, Raymond read where Jesus, where they were talking about the living water? And Jesus was saying that out of, our out of our innermost being will come rivers of living water. This again is a theme that has, did you find throughout scripture? The theme that when we come to Christ, when we come to God, he provides us not just water as he did for the children of Israel in the desert, that was the other scripture this morning, but he actually gives us inside living water. 
something from heaven, something not from us, something whose source is not ours. And if you've ever been in that situation where you're talking with someone and as you're going in, you're thinking, what in the world can I say to actually encourage your help? And then as you walk in, suddenly you speak and it's not you speaking, it's the rivers of living water flowing through you. That's beautiful. That's what we get to do. But on that day, we will be with him. And so this is what we're living for. This is why a Christian in, in Rome during the plague can say, you know what, I love you, and it's the rivers of living water flowing out, and they're helping, and then they're looking forward to, to being here on this day, and we get to be with those believers on that day. So let's keep reading. Verse seven, he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So now I want to skip on down. Uh, He keeps talking about the gates, but I want to go down to verse uh, 21. says, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Verse 22, but I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon or shine, to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter in anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. 
And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that may, they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And if you look all the way at verse 20, it says, And he who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. When you are an ambassador for Jesus, you are an ambassador for right now, for what he can do here, but we are also an ambassador to say, there is coming a day. And our name, your name needs to be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Because this is what he says for the future. This is what he says for our future. And we will see him face to face. So as ambassadors, it helps for us to take the time to consider who he is and as close as we can while we're on earth to gaze into his face and to gaze into his heart so that we come away from our interaction with him to a place where we are quite willing and quite ready to share with others and to be an ambassador for what he's doing. And it might be that we're serving someone else in their moment of need and we will do it with joy because we realize that we're not just living for here and now. We're not just living for us. We're living for that day. And so whatever circumstance you find yourself in, whatever bondage you find yourself in, whether it be actual chains or whether it be chains of illness or whether it be chains of circumstance, whatever comes your way, don't stress and think, well, now I can't serve God. But realize that any ambassador, whether in chains or out of chains, is only as useful as his knowledge, his personal knowledge of the one that he represents. And you can know Jesus in all kinds of bonds as Christians have shown for 2,000 years. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've called us to be your ambassador. Thank you that you've called us to yourself and that you've asked us, Lord, to walk with you. And Lord, most of all, I thank you that we are allowed to know you and to be with you. And so, Father, today I just lift up all of us at Living Water Fellowship and I ask, Lord, would you please encourage our hearts and strengthen us and, and give us that moment to see who you are so that we can respond to you directly, that we are not walking away or, or walking in our own, but that we are able to walk because of you and with you, that we can see you high and lifted up when we go into our daily life. Lord, we love you. I just submit this day to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.